Hello and welcome to Counterthought, a podcast dedicated to my counterthoughts about mainstream media, politics, and culture, and the impact on our nation. I am your host, Brian Fletter. You can follow this podcast on its Facebook page, Counterthought Podcast, on Instagram at counter underscore thought, and on Twitter at counter underscore podcast. Hello and welcome to Counterthought. This is episode 25, Opposition, a three-pronged approach to quell speech. But first, I want to give a huge congratulations to my friend Jess Dalton or Jessica Dalton on Instagram. She has reached 10,000 followers, and I will say she wasn't quite at 10,000 when she was on episode 23, so maybe she can give me like a little bit of credit, I don't know. But if you have not listened to episode 23, please go back and listen to that episode. Uh, In that episode, Jess joins me to discuss faith, fear, and freedom, and it is one you do not want to miss. So congrats again, Jess proud of you. Keep fighting the fight. All right, so opposition. I think we all know what that term means, right? Opposition, opposing, you know, the opposite of. But we face opposition on a variety of fronts, especially if you are of the Republican, conservative, right wing of the political atmosphere. So political opposition, and more specifically on social media. Social media, in my opinion, when it was created, The reason for social media was to engage with other people, right? And to me, it had this wholesome feeling, because my journey began with Facebook, to engage with others, to find your friends, engage with them, talk with them, communicate with them, see pictures, share stories, you know, as it continued to develop. And and then Twitter came along, I think, in 2008-ish. And Twitter was a way for you to just get your voice out there, right? Yeah, you could interact with your friends, but it wasn't set up like Facebook. It's not set up in that same way. Twitter, to me, is more so just getting your opinion out there, putting it out there for all of the world to see. And then Instagram came along, and Facebook bought Instagram, but Instagram was focused on pictures, right? An instant. And you can comment, like, share, so on and so forth. You can still do that to this day. And then YouTube was so that you could put anything out there for the world to see to watch. And now there's been overlap with all of them and you can share across platforms and integrate one to the other. And, but it's all considered social media, right? To be social, to be social, to communicate and talk to other people, to interact with other people. And what I don't think was truly thought through was the way social media would evolve and just the, the negativity that it would bring, right? Rainbows and sunshines when it first started. But now there's just so much negativity and and even worse than that. So on social media, if you are engaging with other people, especially someone you don't know, and for me, I would like to have calm, civil discourse, right? In the political environment, especially now that I've jumped in with Counterthought in the podcast world, and also with my social media accounts for this podcast, you know, I get feedback all the time. I engage with individuals. A lot of them are like-minded people but some are not. An example of this was just this past weekend on, I think it was Sunday afternoon. I was trying to have a, an argument, but not argument as in yelling, just a discussion, civil, calm, lay out my reasons, 
trying to convince a friend's dad, and I consider him a friend as well, but trying to convince him of, of why there is no need for the COVID mask mandate. And we sent a few messages back and forth. I feel like I left it unended on my end. I could respond back to him just to, to make one more counter argument to his, but you know, it was a civil conversation. He disagreed with me. I disagreed with him. You know, we were able to have a civil conversation. But if you jump onto social media, especially if you have a large following, that civil conversation doesn't exist. Maybe you can have that in your DMs, but getting comments from randos, that's not happening. And why is that? It's because it is so, it is much easier to voice an opposing view, your displeasure with something, than it is when you are in agreement with a view, right? There are so many different ways that you can disagree than agree. Like if I say Counterthought is the best podcast in the entire world, and then my super fans, my stands come in there and see my, my post and they comment and say, yeah, I agree. Awesome. You, great job. Woohoo. All right. Not much variety there, right? But someone comes in, considering there are over a million different podcasts out there, that is a million different takes that someone can provide in disagreement. And then you have differences within each of those differences, right? So millions of ways that you can disagree compared to only a few different ways that you can agree. So social media may not be the best forum to actually try to change someone's mind. So why do we even try? People are so set, myself included, in their ways, right? We hear that all the time. Oh, he or she is so set in their ways. You know you're never going to get them to change their opinion. And as they get older, they're just going to dig in deeper and deeper and deeper. And their way of thinking is just going to really anchor down. You know, you're never going to change their mind. Well, try that on social media with someone you don't even know. When I was researching for this podcast episode, one of the things I came across was you know, different articles about how to go about actually changing someone's mind. And one of the articles I read said, don't try to focus on changing someone's mind just by throwing facts in their face. Instead, to get them to change their mind, they have to do it on their own, right? But how do you accomplish that? And the article was saying that in order to change someone's mind, what you need to do is to compel them to identify themselves why they should think differently or why they should change their actions, their ways. You know, one example in that article I was reading, and I, I can't remember where I found it. I think it was a psychology magazine or something like that. But it gave this example of a two guys going back and forth over the course of a couple of years, you know, as the conversation came up about vaccination and not specifically COVID to start, but just with children getting vaccinated in general, right? MMR vaccines and the whole gamut whenever you're within the first like four, five, six years of your life. And the stance of one was like, I'm not getting my child vaccinated. And the stance of the other was, you know, you should get your child vaccinated. Like these are serious diseases. And as that conversation and the time went on, you know, the anti-vaxxer, his opinion never changed. And the other individual who was supporting vaccination was actually like a licensed uh, psychologist or psychiatrist. And they're the ones who determined or realized that their approach has been wrong this entire time. You know, they could throw all these facts out there all they want, which is similar to what I was doing with 
with uh, my friend's dad. You know, I was like, oh, there's you know, no statistical evidence that shows, no scientific evidence that shows that uh, children, especially age five, you know, need to be masked. Blah, blah, blah. You know, there's breakthrough cases, so what's the point of the vaccine if they're still breaking through? You know, there's higher rates of COVID in Vermont, which has a higher vaccination rate amongst its population than any other state in America. So what's going on there? You know, just peppering with facts didn't matter because the facts weren't seen as truthful in in my case. But the approach instead should be, okay, well, start asking some questions instead of just peppering the person with facts. So instead of saying, oh, hey, well, you know, X percent of children die from this disease, you should get them vaccinated. Ask a question like, well, what happens if they do get those diseases? Or if they just get one, what's your plan? You know, asking questions along those lines to get the person to see and think, hmm, well, dang. You know, now I actually feel compelled to get, you know, my children vaccinated in their first X number of years of life as a child. So instead of just throwing facts, you know, people usually, whenever you, someone opposes them, what do they, what do you do? You dig in, right? Think of debate. I was never in debate club, but you know, you see them popping up in movies or TV shows or, you know, you just arguments with people and conversations, you know, you kind of know how to debate. So you debate and you dig into your, your side, your stance, your viewpoint, and you present your best case as to why you are correct. Same thing with discussions, individuals, one-on-one, you know, you're going to dig in. So pepper with someone with facts, are just going to dig in more and more. So instead, try to compel the person by asking questions so that they feel like, oh, well, maybe they need to change their mind. But is that even possible on social media? My conversation with my friend's dad was taking place on Facebook Messenger. You know, that's just one of the many different platforms that we can use to, to interact with people. But he and I, we have, we go back, what am I, the 30s, like 20 years. So I had 20 years and I couldn't do it. So how do we accomplish this on social media? And well, back in July of 2020, the Pew Research Center completed a study. And it says that the share of social media users who say they've changed their views on an issue has increased since the Pew Research Center last asked the question back in 2018. So back in 2018, the Pew Research Center asked the same question if they've changed their views on the issue. And 15% said yes in 2018. But two years later in 2020, it rose to 23%. And that's among the overall population. The share is 17% now and was 14% in 2018. And between Democrats and Republicans, 25% of Democrats said that they've changed their views on an issue. And 21% of Republicans or leaned Republicans said that they've changed their mind on an issue. Now, that article, that study did say that, you know, 2020, this obviously included COVID and Black Lives Matter, which was a huge movement right in the summer of 2020. And that was one of the issues. So maybe, maybe the 23%, the 25%, 21% isn't full, like, I don't want to say not accurate. But it could be elevated a little bit, right, in the results because of the because of the popularity and polarity of Black Lives Matter. 
But that's what the study found. It rose from 18% to 23%, changing their views on an issue. Now, also that study, again, July of 2020, Pew Research Center, said that there are also differences today by race, ethnicity, and age. So, for instance, the Asian Americans, 29% changed their views. Black Americans, 28%. Hispanics, 28%. And they are more likely than whites at 20% to change their views on a political or social issue. And 34% of social media users between ages 18 and 29 say they have changed their views on an issue compared to 23% of 30 to 49-year-olds, 20% of 50 to 64-year-olds, and 13% of those 65 and older. Now, what was I just saying? Right, as you get older, you're going to get more set in your ways, right? We've established that. That's probably goes back as long as humans have been alive, right? You're just going to keep that deep-seated deep-seated memories and views just in your brain, like not going to change, very unlikely. And as you just saw there, as the, the age groups went up, the percent of individuals in those age groups that changed their mind went down. It's hard to change people's minds in general. And with social media, just talking to someone, talking to a screen, right? You could say it's even harder. And then you have social media platforms in specific instances that make it a little bit more difficult, right? So on social media, and I think I touched upon this in episode 24, possibly, can't remember. But right, what, what's one thing that we like? We like like-minded people, like-minded thought, right? And you hear the term, if you watch the news at all, the political news, echo chamber, right? So if I think one thing, I find other like-minded people that think the same thing. And then more and more, I want more and more of those individuals, right? And and eventually, that's all I hear. Everything I say is people are in agreement with me. And then that becomes my reality, right? Which which can be a bad thing in certain instances, certain circumstances. But then social media, right? They use all these algorithms, algorithms to promote certain posts from your friends or promote posts from individuals that you don't even know. And sometimes the algorithm shows you things you do want to see, and sometimes it shows things you do not want to see. And those algorithms involve things that we've said, that we've viewed, that we've liked, that we've shared. So social media can create this echo chamber of sorts for us. And within these echo chambers, like I was just saying, it becomes our new reality. So some view that I have on an issue is just going to get more and more rooted deeper and deeper the more I interact with the individuals who have the same view, right? And then if I venture outside of my echo chamber and, you know, walk outside and try to knock on the door and get into the other echo chamber, what's the likelihood that I'm going to actually change their mind? I've already said peppering the person with facts isn't going to, isn't going to happen. You have to compel them to see a reason why to change their mind. That seems to be the best method to do that. And with that Pew Research Center study, the highest percentage of people, even down to the younger age group, starting at age 18, was only like 25, 26% said they've changed their mind on a view. One in four people. That's one in four people. And then as you get older, 
decreased all the way down to 13%. Basically, one in eight individuals, one in nine, twice as bad, twice as hard. But as we are surfing through social media and we come across come across a view, a vantage point, a, a viewpoint within the other echo chamber, not of our own, we have two options when we see something online. We can either fight or we can flight. We can fight with disagreement and we can go on the attack or we can choose flight and agree. However, there's only so many ways, as I was saying, that you can comment in agreement. So that fight option is just so tempting, isn't it? It's so tempting because we have so many more options to express our disagreeing opinions, our opposition to the take, to the view. And that just feeds itself, right? We start to like that. We like to voice our displeasure. We like to shout someone down. We like to say like, eh, you're wrong, I'm right. And then we go along a little bit further down the social media path and we come up with another opposing view. And we comment on that. We fight that. And we just keep going, looking for more and more and more because it feels good. It feels good to stand up for what you believe in. And it feels good thinking and believing that you are in the right and not in the wrong. But shouting at someone and just voicing a single comment isn't going to change someone's mind. We need that civil, calm discourse, right? The conversations. Only through conversations can you truly compel someone to possibly change their mind. You could maybe comment on someone's post or something and, and leave a question for them to think about, right? To ponder. But unless they respond back to you, that's your one interaction with them. But we choose a lot of times the fight, not the flight. Because there are so many different ways for us to fight the opposition to our view. But social media and their algorithms isn't all fun and games, right? We've heard these stories. Social media has been caught censoring certain material in the last couple of years. Probably goes farther back than that, but really ramped up here in the past couple of years. Let's go with uh, some of the greatest hits. We have the Hunter Biden laptop story, right? The New York Post put that out there on Twitter. Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and I believe YouTube, all of them we found out are in like cahoots and share share different things back and forth to know like, hey, if there's something that comes out and we need to censor it, we can all do it at, simultaneously. But the New York Post had their Twitter taken down for, I think it came out to be about two, three weeks, maybe a month because New York Post didn't want to remove the post. They wanted Twitter just to re reactivate their account, right? And we found out that the Hunter Biden laptop story came out to be true. And I believe polls were taken and surveys were shown to, to say that if that story was allowed to run, which was a few weeks before the 2020 election, that it would have swayed X percent of voters to not vote for Biden. We also have COVID data and treatments that differ from CDC recommendations. Those are being censored, removed, flagged, right? We've all seen the flags. Anytime you mention the word COVID or vaccine or mandate or shot or pandemic, whatever you post is going to have a little flag on it that directs you to some kind of information on that platform. Then we had the lab leak theory, which is the COVID Wuhan lab origin story. That was originally said not to be true. It's looking now more and more and more people are accepting the fact or possibly believing that it could be a leak from a lab and not just come from 
a wet market a bat that bit somebody. But that originally wasn't around, wasn't allowed to circle or cycle through the different social media platforms. And then we have shadow banning of posts by people from the political right. Post something and then social media comes along behind you, takes it down. Or they reduce the number or they reduce the number of followers you have. My friend Jess Dalton, she's noticed that. I mean, she has 10,000 followers, which to me is a lot, but, you know, not nearly as much as someone who could have 20 million followers. But even at her 10,000 number, she noticed that all of a sudden, once she hit about 8,500, I think 9,000, she went like at least a day or two without any additional followers and even saw her numbers go down a little bit as if she pinged someone in the Instagram department somewhere. And it was like, Ooh, here's Jessica Dalton. And why is she becoming so popular all of a sudden? Maybe we should uh, slow that down a little bit. And then also accounts were taken down. For example, Trump as the sitting president, right? Like, Oh my gosh, talk about power. Trump's account was taken down off Twitter and Facebook. They've even had congressional hearings about that. The New York Post, like I just mentioned about the Hunter Biden story. And then numerous political accounts that lean conservative and personal accounts. And then I heard a story since jumping into today's or this week's news about Kyle Rittenhouse, right? He's on trial this for the last two weeks about whether or not he was using self-defense when he killed those two men in Kenosha and shot a third. But evidently, a GoFundMe account or GoFundMe pages that were set up and dedicated to um, to Kyle Rittenhouse's defense fund were removed from the GoFundMe site. However, you search GoFundMe and other sites like that, you find that funds exist for murderers and as bail money for rioters and statue vandalizers which were promoted and supported by Kamala Harris and Michael Moore. The GoFundMe account for the defense fund for Kyle Rittenhouse is so absurd that people lost their jobs because they contributed to it before the the page was taken down and then were snitched on to their employer and the employer fired that individual. But social media platforms aren't just the only ones to blame when it comes to quelling speech, opposing speech, opposition speech. Congress is in on it too. The Democrats in the Senate and the House, they want to break up social media tech monopolies to control speech with less of it. Whereas Republicans in the Senate and the House want to break up social media tech monopolies because they don't allow enough speech. The Republican view is that they have the tech companies have too much power and that they're wielding it to silence speech and editorialize speech. And the Republicans say, hey, let everyone say what they need to say. Just let it all be out there and let the people who use those platforms make their decisions on what they believe is true and not true. Whereas the Democrats in the Senate and the House want tech companies to do a better job at silencing speech, censoring speech, quelling speech, and to use their own internal fact checkers and label things as misinformation. That's one way that they get you to take something down. Oh, this is misinformation by our fact checkers that we employ. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Misinformation gone. So Congress is in on it. The Democrats in Congress are in on it. But it doesn't stop there. Nope. Have you heard of the FCC? F is in Frank. The FCC won't let me be. 
right? For you millennials out there, I know you just recognize that Eminem rap. But the FCC is in on this. So the FCC is the Federal Communications Commission. And what the FCC does is it regulates interstate and international communications by radio, television, the wire, satellite, and cable in all 50 U.S. states, the District of Columbia, and U.S. territories. The FCC is an independent government agency that is overseen by Congress, and the commission, the FCC, is the United States' primary authority for communications law, regulation, and technological innovation. Now, what's going on with the FCC? Why am I bringing the FCC up? Well, this past week, at the end of October, President Biden decided to nominate two individuals. The first individual is Jessica Rosenworkel. She is currently the FCC chair, and the FCC is made up of five commissioners. And then one of the commissioners is the acting chair. So Jessica Rosenworkel is one is the chair. She's one of the five commissioners. Now, there is an open commissioner spot, so there's only four in there right now. So the fifth one is open, and President Biden nominated Gigi Sohn to that fifth spot. Not to be the FCC chairman, but as the commissioner. And if confirmed, they're both Democrats. That would give the Democrats a majority 3-2. But if neither are confirmed, then the Republicans would have the majority 2-1. 2-1 since... Ms. Rosenworkel's already already a commissioner, already serving as the chair. Her term ends at the end of this year, so she would drop off, and that would leave just three. Two Republicans, one Democrat. So according to Reuters, the U.S. Senate Commerce Committee will begin their confirmation hearing on November 17th. And that confirmation hearing will be for a new term for the current FCC chair, which is Jessica Rosenworkel. But it, without being confirmed to that new term, which is a five-year term, like I just said, she would have to leave the FCC at the end of the year. There is no date for Gigi Sohn yet, but that confirmation has to take place in 2021 in order to claim the majority in the FCC, that 3-2 majority. But there's already been heavy opposition among Senate Republicans against Gigi Sohn. She's been around since 2002, it's been a, a lawyer for the FCC, has been an activist related to net neutrality and other, um, other issues related to the FCC. But there's opposition regarding policies that they believe she would support and try to enact. But one specific cause for concern is from a 2020 tweet by Sohn. So in October of 2020, Sohn tweeted, this is during uh, one of the Facebook congressional hearings. Sohn tweeted, for all my concerns about Facebook, I believe that Fox News has had the most negative impact on our democracy. It's state-sponsored propaganda with few, if any, opposing viewpoints. Where's that hearing about? End quote. She singles out Fox News during a Facebook hearing. This is troubling, Right. She's about to go up for confirmation, potentially, and potentially get approved and confirmed to join the FCC. And she has a tweet out there from last year talking down, talking negatively about Fox News, talking about it being state propaganda. 
because Trump was still in office. You know, Fox News, the one of three major conservative news outlets, media outlets out there in the world, well, in the United States. Fox News is state propaganda, right? You know, yeah, they kick butt in ratings when you go up against the big three on the liberal media side, CNN, MSNBC, CBS, ABC. But a tweet directed at Fox News and calling it state propaganda. And this is one of the two people that Biden is nominating for an FCC chairman position. Sohn doesn't have any kind of history about censorship. But that's tweet, that tweet is troubling, isn't it? Because maybe what Sohn has been hiding is the fact that if an FCC chairman, she would push for conservative censorship and deplatforming even though she hasn't said that she would do that to this date. Now for Rosenworkel, and I apologize if I'm pronouncing her last name, I probably am, but oh well, I'll get it right later. In 2017, again, she's been on the FCC, she's been FCC chairman since 2012. But in 2017, she spoke out against President Trump's remark about removing the FCC license from NBC News after NBC News published a fake story about Trump's nuclear policy. Rosenworkel called it, quote, an assault on free expression. And she also said, I don't think that the government should be in the business of substituting its judgment for programming licensees. And also went on to say, I think it's essential for news gathering that the government isn't dictating what content should and shouldn't be on the airwaves. Sounds great, right? You know, no government involvement. However, fast forward to February 2021. Two Democrat U.S. representatives, Anna Eshoo and Jim McNerney, submitted letters to 12 cable and streaming companies pressuring them to stop airing Fox News, Newsmax, and OANN. Also, those two congressmen, sent a letter to President Biden advocating for the nomination of Ms. Jessica Rosenworkel to be the permanent FCC chair, another five-year term. Now, since the letter calling for the deplatforming of conservative media, guess who hasn't spoken up about that? You're right. Ms. Rosenworkel, yes. So she commented when Trump was president, and said what he said about NBC News. Well, she was actively an FCC chairman. She called for the other four FCC chairmen to stand up in opposition against what Trump said. But then when two Democrat U.S. representatives submit a letter to 12 cable and streaming companies pressuring them to deplatform Fox News, Newsmax, and OANN, she's nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found even after the two Republican FCC commissioners called for the other two Democrat commissioners, including her, to denounce the letters along with them. Silence. What does that say? What does that tell you? And what else has happened since those two letters were written by those two congressmen, Democrat congressmen? Miss Rosenworkel has been nominated by President Biden for another five-year term to be the FCC chairman. And if confirmed, she would be the first female FCC chairman. So the first letter was to deplatform conservative me news media. She hasn't said anything about that. 
And the second letter was to the White House, to the Biden administration, advocating for her appointment to a new term, five-year term, to be the FCC chair. And what happened? Eight months later, she's been nominated to be the FCC chair. Funny how that works, right? Hmm. Kind of similar to the letter from the school board association to the DOJ, and then that resulted in a DOJ uh, policy change, right? For the parents and domestic terrorism? Right. That's how it works. Write a letter, actions taken. But is being the first female FCC chairman the reason that she's being nominated? Or is it because that she will do the bidding of the Democrat Party to remove the voice of the opposing views, meaning conservative media outlets? And then if Gigi Sohn is also confirmed, along with her tweet against Fox News, will the two of them with their majority, 3-2 majority at that point, target conservative media, conservative news, conservative speech, to silence it, to quell it? To where we can try to speak at the top of our lungs and can never be heard? Is that the goal here? Is that the goal of the Democrat, liberal, Biden playbook? To quell my speech, your speech, an entire news organization, their speech? So where does this leave us? It's hard enough to have a conversation with someone to change their mind, as we discussed. But there are specific things that make it difficult for us to change our opinions and views on different subject matter. And we know that it is easier to disagree and sometimes more enjoyable to disagree with a viewpoint than it is to agree with a view. There is more ways, like I said, to show disagreement than there are to show agreement or your support. So whether your approach to change someone's mind is to shout and yell your viewpoint or to have a calm and civil discussion like I did with my friend about an opposing view. Regardless of that, the deck is being stacked against conservative and right-wing thought directly beneath our noses. It is hiding in plain sight. I just talked about what the FCC is up to, what the Biden administration is up to using the FCC, and what the Democrats in Congress are up to with the big tech social media companies. They're upset because the big tech social media companies aren't doing enough to stop conservative speech that they consider misinformation because it goes against their agenda when actually it's factually true. And the liberal media creates false narratives and promotes fake stories to meet their own agenda. So we have the liberal media, we have the bureaucracy, and we have social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, that allow free speech, and then they get in trouble with the Democrats, and then the Democrats threaten to change Section 230 because they want less speech on the platforms. So then social media companies, in response, police conservative speech by censoring the content because they classify it as hateful or misinformation or disinformation, and that it is in violation of community guidelines when the content is actually nothing of the sort. We experience this. You listening right now may have experienced that. But now the new piece of this controlled speech puzzle is that bureaucracy. We knew about Congress this past year, 2020 and 2021. We knew about social media. But now we have this third piece, this third prong, 
the FCC. And the FCC, in my opinion, is going to be the hammer, and the conservative right-wing speech is the nail. If the conservative right-wing speech is causing enough trouble, the FCC can enact policies and remove licenses to deplatform and silence the opposing viewpoint outlets. Fox News, Newsmax, OANN, and other outlets that we might listen to through podcasts or newspapers or the radio. And for the last four years, we heard how Trump is a fascist and a tyrant without any basis for it, or no policies were enacted, no actions taken to quell speech. But now under the Biden administration, we have a three-pronged approach to silent speech of the opposition. And instead of that, I wish they would just let us be. All right, that's it for this episode. Remember to subscribe and engage with me on Instagram at counter underscore thought, on Twitter at counter underscore podcast, and on the Counterthought Podcast page on Facebook. Thank you for listening to Counterthought.